The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray again. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can worship you this morning, that we can center our hearts and our minds on you. Be be with us as we look at your word, as we consider just the amazing realities of the gospel. Help us to rest in in the truth that while we are sinners, you died for us. And when we place our faith in you, we can truly rest that we are good with you. Father, be with us now as we as we get to look at John in your name. Amen. Well, I would encourage you once again to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. That's where we're picking up on this story. I just want to um, remind us of where we were last week and kind of set the scene for us for a moment. I've got a longer introduction than I normally do, so if you're worried, is ever going to get to the text? Yes, I am. But I just want to remind us of the heart of why Jesus is launching into this whole discourse that we are in the middle of. And I want to do that by kind of focusing in on religious people and religion. Now, I don't, I'm not intending to poke anyone in the eyes this morning with this, but if you're offended, sorry, maybe you need to hear this for the first time. It's always good to check ourselves on why we believe something or why we are um, going about in our religious manners. You see, rules and religion are almost synonymous in many of our minds and many of the world's minds. When they think of religion, they think of rules, and that is because religious people are some of the most principled people that I know. Principled people in this way, we have a set ethic and moral and theological guidelines that we diligently follow at all costs. I'm not necessarily knocking this. It's important, actually, to, you know, have a strict hold on truth and to uh, see that truth is upheld and followed. And it's important for us to follow in the footsteps of those who have gone before us. I mean, we believe that here, being a confessional church, we look at what um, others have, how they have looked at Scripture, and, and we follow in their footsteps. But as we enter into religious spaces and as we enter into a religious life and as we live our lives for Christ in a religious manner, it's important for us to ask the question, why are we doing this? Why are we going through all of the, why are we following all of the rules? Why are we going through all of the um, uh, just normal steps of the religious life? One of the things that I've noticed around here is that as new visitors are coming, and we've had um, an an influx of those recently, that one of the main questions that is asked is, what do you believe? I love that question. I love the question of, what do you believe? uh, Obviously, that is the most important thing in my mind as a pastor, that we are holding fast the word of truth. And so when people come in, they ask various questions. Sometimes they ask about a specific topic that they're personally passionate about. Others come in, and and they're looking for at certain areas of the church because the, the last church they were in, they struggled with those areas. There's still more that want to make sure that our preferences align with their preferences. And they're always asking, what do you believe? What do you do? How do you operate? And the reason they're asking those questions, the reason we're asking those questions, is because they want to feel safe. They want to be able to rest and know, I'm in a good spot. You see, safety comes when you believe that what you're teaching is appropriate and true. 
Safety comes when you believe the teaching and actions of the leadership or of the church or yourself are leading you to God so that you can be good with God. What keeps us up at night is the thought, am I living in a God-honoring way and is God pleased with me, happy with me? Am I good with God? Are my actions good with God? And when I get to heaven, is he going to accept me? And so out of a desire to be good with God, we curate these godly lives, do we not? We curate these, these principles, these ethics around us of, okay, this is how we have to live to maintain a standard of godliness so that God can be good with us. We figure out the do's and don'ts of life. We place certain disciplines in our life that, that will keep us on track. We have accountability that um, interacts and makes sure that we're following those things. Now, all of this is well and good. All of this is well and good. It's great to have uh, robust doctrinal statements that we follow. It's wise to work out certain spiritual disciplines. It's healthy to have a, a accountability. It's beneficial to read books on the Christian life and discuss how we can better follow God. But here's what I want to pose to us this morning. All of those things can be very dangerous. I'm like, wait a second. Isn't that the foundation church? All of those things can be very dangerous. Here's why. We can fall into the trap of starting to trust in all of those steps and processes that we have placed in our life instead of trusting in Christ. The, it's dangerous because we start trusting in the wrong things. And I would say if we want to be the most un, if we want to be in the most unsafe place, in the most difficult place, in the most frightening place, it's this, it's believing in the wrong thing. I would say the greatest struggle of the Christian life is to keep trusting in the object of our faith and not in the quality of our faith. Now we've said this around here before at community. So what does that mean? I get, we get so much personal pleasure out of evaluating the quality of our faith. We do. I, we're built this way because we're built to follow the law and we're, we're always looking to codify our lives and we get so much joy out of evaluating our faith. We judge how we're doing better this year compared to last year, do we not? We go, well, I was struggling with this last year. I'm not struggling with this this year. Therefore, I am better. We relate how we're doing compared to those around us, our neighbor, our kids, our spouse, our friends. We go, well, I'm better than they are because I don't struggle in these ways. I don't have this particular sin. I'm better than them, so therefore, I'm good. We have all of these metrics put around our life to assure ourselves that we're good with God. But that can be very dangerous. Because let's run that out to the end. That ubiquitous picture that everyone says, you get to heaven, you're standing in front of God. He asks you, why are you here? What are you going to say? Well, because I did X, Y, and Z. Because I went to the right church. Because I didn't fall into the wrong sins. Because I disciplined my body. That's the quality of your faith. That's the quantity of your faith. That's what you do. Guess what God's going to say? Wrong. Because the reason, the, the way that we can be saved is not in the quality of our faith, but is the object. 
Romans 11, 6 says this, It is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What does that mean? We never get to a point in our Christian life when the reason that we are saved flips from the faith that we have in Christ to the actions that we've done for Christ. But we live that way. Which is why I say the greatest struggle and concern in the Christian life that we have is to start trusting in the wrong things. You see, the things we do for Christ can quickly overtake Christ himself in our mind. And we can quickly shift from God to a man-made religion focusing on the wrong things. Which gets us to our passage today. We're going to see Jesus become very frustrated with the religious rulers of the day. And it's not only going to be in our passage today, it's going to carry us all the way through the end of chapter 9. I mean, Jesus is at his wits end. He he flipped over the tables at the beginning of John. That was the physical flipping. I mean, metaphorically, he's constantly flipping over the tables of the religious rulers of the day. He is so frustrated by them. And the reason is, is because they have begun to trust in the wrong things. They've begun to trust in their laws. They began to trust in the quality of the faith, their quantity of faith, their man-made religion. It started good. It started, they just wanted to honor God. But it went from a God-honoring place to a man-honoring place. It went from following God to following themselves. It went from giving God the glory to giving themselves the glory. Let's remind us of where we were at last week at the beginning of chapter 5. We saw that Jesus is now in Jerusalem and he goes to uh, the pool, the pool in uh, Bethsaida. And there were five roof colonnades there and there lay a multitude of invalids. And Jesus started walking around, a multitude of of invalids scattered around and walks up to this no-name, random individual that had been there for for 38 years and asked him a question that was a no-brainer. Do you want to be healed? Yes, I do. That's why I'm sitting next to a pool. Somebody has to get me in. And this guy goes, yes, but there's no way that I can be healed because there's a superstitious thing that when the waters are moving up, somebody's got to put me in the water in order for me to be healed. And Jesus kind of glosses over that and goes, no, be healed, get up, take your bed and walk. Jesus healed this guy. We thought this is awesome. It's a miracle. But what did we see? The religious authorities quickly ran up to this guy who was walking around for the first time in 38 years carrying his bed and said, hey, that's not good. You're breaking the law. Put down your bed, lay back down. That's not how that's supposed to be. And there was this whole thing of, well, I don't know who this man was who healed me. I don't know where he went and what does Jesus do? He finds this man in the temple again and says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And we may think if the guy who was walking for the first time in 38 years because of the miraculous words of Jesus, that he would begin to believe in Jesus, but he didn't. Because the very first opportunity that he had to rat Jesus out to what he was he did. He ran back to the religious authorities and said, I know who the man, I know who the man was that made me sin, who's breaking your laws. Let me tell you about it. It's Jesus. And we left him there. It says in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews what Jesus, who 
that it was Jesus who healed him and that this is why he healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, my father is working until now and I am working. The religious authorities had one simple answer or question and had a very simple answer. The question was this, who gave you the authority to break our laws? Who gave you the authority to work outside of our system? Who gave you the authority to start messing up our put together religious life? That's the question behind the question here. And Jesus answered him, well, my father, God, has been working until now, and oh yeah, I am working. So the answer to this very short question is this, me, I'm the one who gave the authority. I'm the one who can step in and say, you guys are wrong. I'm the one who's adjusting this because yeah, you're wrong, it's me. And this unleashed one of the most technical passages about Jesus' divinity that the New Testament has to offer. What, we're, what we are going to look at today from verses 17 to, well, all the way through the end of 47, we're going to split it up. We're actually only going to go through uh, verse 29. But this section, 17 to 47, is the greatest description from Jesus of his own divinity and authority. It's the greatest description of Jesus and God's relationship, i.e. the Trinity. We're going to talk about that for a moment here. It's a very technical passage on Jesus's divinity. And it might be the most important passage that we have where Jesus describes what he is doing. Here's, here's what one commentator said. Nowhere else in the gospel do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father. His divine commission and authority and the proofs of his messiahship as we find in this discourse. Now I say all of that to give everyone a, a heads up. This is a pretty technical passage and we're gonna, we are going to work through it. And it's very important and it will shape your faith in Christ. So with that, I want to just finish reading this passage. It's going to be from 18 to 29. And then as always, we'll unpack it. Again, they went to Jesus who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the, answer, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and, sh so, and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises from the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he wills. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to his son, that all may honor the son so that they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because of the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We'll pick up on the rest of it next week. If you feel like I just read you a legal brief, it's because actually I did. When Jesus says in verse 17, but Jesus answered him, he's actually using courtroom language. This word for answered is exceedingly rare in the Greek, and it is exclusively, outside of this, used in courtroom language, as if you are being put on trial and you are being asked to give a formal defense against the charges that are made. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is giving a legal defense to the religious authorities who are accusing him of blasphemy. I mean, think back to this. They had all of these structures laid over about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Very principled in that way. Good Christians, good Jews can do this on the Sabbath and cannot do that on the Sabbath. And then Jesus comes in and breaks their whole paradigm down. And they're left by saying, who gives you the authority to break down our laws? And Jesus answers them in legal terms. Well, God does because I am God. Verse 17 sets the tone and makes it very clear that the religious authorities are speaking with somebody who has the same authority, the same position, the same honor as God. He is proving in this whole section that he is in fact equal with God in authority. Now he demonstrates his authority in two ways. We're going to break up this passage in, in two ways. First, he demonstrates it through verses 19 through 23, that he's equal with God because of his intimate connection that he has with God. And then second, he says he's, in, he's equal with God because the Father has delegated his judgment to him. Now, we have to talk about a word here for a moment, even before we get into the passage, and that word is Trinity. I'm sure if you're in the room, you've heard this word Trinity. What is a Trinity? Well, it's that word that's describing the union of the Godhead. Here's uh, maybe one of the best ways that we can describe this. This is from Westminster Larger Catechism, question nine. How many persons are in the Trinity? How many persons are in the Godhead? The answer is this. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished in their personal properties. That question, how that question describes the Trinity and what I just described to you was the ontological structure of the Trinity. Don't have your eyes roll back in the head. We'll get, just, just allow me to be technical for a moment. The ontological structure of, of the Trinity. Ontology is a study of being. So when, while we talk about the ontological structure of the Trinity, what we're looking at is we are referring to the Trinity in its natural state. So it's the nature of the Trinity without regard to the working of the Trinity. So the ontological aspect of, of the Trinity is that they are all in same substance, equal part, and glory. But this passage here, Jesus is highlighting the Trinity, but he's not highlighting it in the ontological way. He's highlighting it in the economic structure of the Trinity, what it does. So he's dealing with the activity of God and the roles of the three persons regarding creation and redemption. So if the ontological view looks at who the Trinity is, the economic view looks at what the Trinity does. 
Jesus is here describing for us the interworkings of the Godhead, the interworkings of the Son and the Father and how this goes down. It can be very easy to think that the Father and the Son are separate, that they, have, that they are not always on the same page, that, that they are um, that at odds with each other. But what this text describes for us is that that is never the case, that the Father and the Son— the Holy Spirit isn't talked about here, but that's also here as well, that are always in one accord and in total agreement. Now, how does Jesus describe this to us? He describes this to us in four, four statements. In four, four statements. In four preposition statements that start with four, the Greek word gar. And I, and I think this is the best way to understand this passage. As I said, it's, very, it's, a, it's a legal brief. It's a very technical passage. So we're going to use the most basic structure here and allow the text to, uh, to have this flow of thought. The first four statement that we get is in verse 19. For the father, no, 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 that's not 19, that's 20. For, who, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. The religious authorities are going, who gave you the right to break up our traditions? Jesus goes, me. Because whatever the father does, the son does likewise. The activity of the son is entirely defined by the activity of the father. There is no distinction. Whatever he does, whatever God the father does, God the son will inherently do. There's never a moment when God the father does something that God the son will not do. And there's never a moment that God the son will do something that God the father does not do. This union is completely linked that we can look at and go, okay, whatever God the Father is doing, the Son will do also. Here's the thing. These Jews were used to having God the Father. They thought of Yahweh as being one. Jesus comes and they're like, wait a second, how in the world is this guy now claiming that he is God when we believe that God is one? That's the struggle with the Trinity that makes your head flow because how can one be three? I don't know, I'm... A finite creature. But Jesus comes and says, no, the, the father that you knew in the Old Testament, Yahweh that walked with you through the wilderness, the, the God that created everything is not one, it is three. And him and I are equal in parts and we are in agreement. Here's what one commentator said. The imitation of the son is so intimately connected to the unimaginable limitlessness of the father that the point is less what the son cannot do it's more, it is the one with whom the son does it. It is impossible for the son to take independent, self-determined actions that would set him against the father. We so much want to know what God the father is doing. In life, we want to know what God the Father is doing. In life, when we look at the catastrophes of the world, at the struggles of this world, we're wondering, God, what are you doing? And for us, it's hard to imagine what is God like, who, what is his nature like, because he is spirit, because he is outside of us, because, because we are his creatures and we are uh, in, in, uh, creatures in this nature and he is not of this nature. And when God the Son comes on the scene, what we see is God the Father described for us, illustrated for us in human life. So if you ever wonder what's God the Father like, you can look at the Son. The second four statement that we see, verse 20, he's describing it. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. The Father 
is disclosing his plans to his son. Have you ever thought that Jesus came to earth, started walking around amongst sinners, and was shocked at the fact that the cross was in his future? There's actually a view of the atonement that teaches that. And he didn't realize that that's what it would take. And after spending 33 years on this earth, he realized that's what it's going to have to take to save people. So I guess I'm willing to go to the cross. That was never a question in his mind. The son was never caught off guard by the fact that the way that we could be reconciled to God was for him to get on a cross and die for our sins. There was never a moment when he got to earth and went, it's going to take what? Huh? What we see here is that the father and the son were in complete agreement. And the father said, this is what it is going to take. The father and the son, the father shows all of himself and what he is doing. So what we also see is that when Jesus comes down and walks on this earth, we have this preconceived notion of how God would deal with sinners. We think judgment and wrath, fire and brimstone, rejection and all the like. That's how good religious people deal with sinners. We just kick them to the curb and say, get out of here. But what we see Jesus is that he's not rejecting sinner. He's a friend of sinner. And, we, and what we can see is that's not an action that just Jesus is doing independent of the Father. That's demonstrating for us the heart that the Father has for sinners. But think about it. The Father sent his Son. Looked at the destruction that was on this earth and went, I'm not going to leave them in their misery. I'm not going to leave them in their isolation. They will not continue to be my enemies. I will send them that thing that they need in order for us to be reconciled. We see the Father's love in the actions of the Son. This is demonstrated in the Son's love for the Father and perfect obedience. When he, gets to the, when he gets to the garden and he goes, not my will, but yours be done. I will go to the cross. The son is revealing the father's heart through his actions and the son is executing the father for us through his life. One of the consistent conversations that I have with individuals is about assurance of salvation. I've had so many conversations over assurance of salvation because we're all doubting of our, of our salvation because we know the garbage that is inside of us. And the conversation goes like this. But I'm so bad, Jesus couldn't possibly save me. But I still doubt that Jesus did what enough. I'm not sure if this is going to work. These are the questions and the conversations that, that surround this. Here's what th this declaration shares with us. Our assurance is not based on God's love for us. Our assurance is based on God's love for his son and the son's love for the father. Because our assurance is found in what God determined before the foundations of the world to save sinners. 
That's where our assurance is found. It's not found in us. It's not found in the quality of our faith. It's found in what God has determined to do in the relationship that God and the Son have. So if you are out there and you are struggling with your assurance, I would say stop looking at the quality of your faith and the quantity of your faith and that stuff that you do do and you don't do because that will wreck you. Start looking at the object of your faith. Christ came to take on flesh to die on a cross, not because he loved you first, but because he loved God first. Third, verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he wills. No one questions or no one When everyone gets to the brink of death, who do they cry out to? God, save me. Help me. Where are you? We saw this in the Old Testament all the time. God, what have you done? Have you brought us out here to die? We always think to cry out to God. What this says is actually life is found not in God, but in the Son, because God has delegated those responsibilities to the Son. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. So now, as we're looking at our Savior, we're looking to Christ. Fourth, we've got to speed it up here. The fourth one, actually, if you have ESV or, or NASB, the four is not in the verse, but it, in the Greek, it is there. Verse 22 it should say, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to his son. The judgment and honor that is rightfully God the Father, that no one questions. No one questions can the Father judge us. If God came down, however that would work, and started to poke holes in the religious authorities system and all of their principles, no one would say, oh, oh, no, you can't do that, God, because he's God. Here, he gives that full authority to his son. And this carries us over into the second section. We're going to do this far more quickly than we did this first section. The Father judges no one, but has given it to the Son. The Father has delegated his judgment to Christ. So I want to read 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. When Christ took on flesh... All authority and honor and judgment and life-giving power was given to Christ. When these religious authorities are walking around saying, who gives you the right to mess with us? The answer is, I'm God. My father is God and I have the exact same authority as God. Think about the irony though as we just wrap up this passage. We're going to come back to this section and more as we talk about um, 30 through the end of 46 next week. Think about the irony. These religious authorities walk up to Jesus and say, who gives you the right? And Jesus' answer is, me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the creator. I'm God. You're talking to the one, you, you want to judge me, you're talking to the one whom before you will stand in judgment. You're talking to the one whom the Father has given power over life and death. Just as as we wrap this up, I want to read one more quote for us this morning. Just describes the weight of this text and also the weight of what's coming. 
says this. This is merely the beginning of Jesus' defense. It goes on not just for a few more verses, but for a few more chapters, and it's heavy going. It will take us into deep theological waters, but those deep theological waters are at the heart of our faith of the Christian church. And it's because of these things that we come together to worship and to honor him. What Jesus is making clear in this section here today, what he will make clear in the section next week, and what we will see throughout this gospel Jesus is not concerned with the quality or the quantity of the Jewish religious faith. He doesn't come on the scene and go, good, good job, good job. You made hedges around these laws. You've made sure that you've never broken the Sabbath. Good job. No, he questions them. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the fact that you're not going to let a lame man who was just healed walk on the Sabbath? Are you trusting in that to be good before God? Or are you trusting in me? to make you good before God. Here's the warning for us all. We can so easily slip into trusting in what we do than trusting in the one who has done it perfectly. It's so easy for us to live a life in Christ, to live a good and godly life, to hold on to the right things, to to get to that safe place in our Christian life and for us to remove Jesus and to put in all of the things that we have all those principles that we have held true. And that's a problem because then God's gonna ask you, why, why should I let you into heaven? And if the answer is because I haven't done this or I have done that or I went to this type of church or I believed in this thing, that's a dangerous place to be. If the answer is because I believe in the one who lived a perfect life, died the perfect death, and it is only because of him that I can have assurance of my salvation, You're right on point. As we just focus our time towards communion this morning, uh, I just have to think that it's, this is the perfect roadblock in our week for us to stop and remind ourselves and the rest of us that our hope is not found in our principles and our ethics and our morals and our beliefs. Our hope is found in Christ. Dear Saint, I hope that you're not going to fall into the same trap as these Jewish believers thinking that self-righteousness is the answer. I hope that you're willing to look at your life, re-examine it, and just ask the question, what am I believing in? Where, where does my hope lie? It's a technical passage, it's a weighty passage, yes, but what it screams at us is Christ is the answer. Full stop there. Nothing else. Let's pray and we can take communion together. Father, thank you for your word, for the church. Thank you that you place roadblocks in our life for us to stop and consider what we're trusting in. Lord, it is so easy for us to take our eyes off of you and place them on the works of our hands. So easy for us to fall into moralism, into pietism, into self-righteousness, into doing the good things for the wrong reasons. Lord, break us of our pride, give us humility, and give us eyes to see that our only hope in life and death is found in you. In your name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.